It is one of the most beautiful spots in the Western Hemisphere, one where my wife and I honeymooned 21 years ago in 1998, and it's now the unlikely home of a notable thoroughbred racetrack. But the story of horse racing on the island of St. Lucia is somewhat controversial. We'll examine the Pearl of the Caribbean. Plus, we're going to have a history lesson about dirt. Yes, dirt. Before we know where we might be headed with racetrack surface technology, we need to know where we've been. So we'll talk about the history of dirt on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the It's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on Stitcher and that little pink podcatcher app or wherever you get your podcasts. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Roughly three years ago, in November of 2016, the Prime Minister of St. Lucia, Alan Chastanet, joined Prince Harry, now the Duke of Sussex, and Teo Ah King, chairman of the China Horse Club, at a groundbreaking ceremony for a would-be new racetrack. Not to heighten expectations or anything, but the track would be called the Pearl of the Caribbean. It would sit on 700 acres of relatively undeveloped land at the southern end of the island, and alongside the track would be a casino, resorts, a marina, shopping, and even high-end residential areas. Teo's design company, Desert Star Holdings, would build it all. DSH had designed and built the palatial Maidan Racecourse in Dubai, where the Dubai World Cup is now held. The original hope was to open in December of 2017, then it became 2018, and finally the track is now open this month, with the signature race, the $150,000 Pitons Cup, being run on the island's national day. Among those involved in the Pitons Cup, which is named for the mountains that are St. Lucia's signature landmark, are Windstar Farm, Todd Pletcher, and Saul Kuman. Pretty big names. Since over 60% of St. Lucia's economy comes from tourism, the idea of a race meet comprised of shippers from other countries makes sense. But for every benefit in life, there is a cost. And one keen observer of the socio-economic history of St. Lucia says that this deal is not at all what it's cracked up to be. Dr. Anderson Reynolds is a native of View Fort St. Lucia who was educated here in the United States. He has a Ph.D. in food and resource economics from the University of Florida. Dr. Reynolds writes frequently about the socio-economic history of St. Lucia, and he joins us here on In the Gate to talk about what the average race fan doesn't know about the deal to build the Pearl of the Caribbean. By the way, we should point out that we had reached out to a representative of Desert Star Holdings and the China Horse Club to get their version of this deal. They politely declined to join us. So, Dr. Reynolds... First of all, one of the big issues is the cost of the land and who pays for it. You write that some of the land will be sold at less than half its market value, while other parts of the complex will be leased for just $1 for 99 years. But I could name you numerous deals where land is leased for a dollar for a number of years. 
The city of Newark, New Jersey, for example, is spending $27 million over 30 years to rent a parking lot that it sold for $1 as part of a sports deal with the National Hockey League's New Jersey Devils. So, what bothers you so much about this deal for the land in St. Lucia? Well, you are, you are quite right.、Um, this is an instrument that governments use to attract investments. But one of the concerns is if It is not clear to us what we are getting from such a generous concession because there are no provisions in the agreement for local investment participation. There is no provision for, say, St. Lucians to be investors in that development. Also, if you look at that aspect in isolation, you could say, yes, this is a trend. Worldwide, for governments attracting investments. But when you look at this aspect of it, along with other aspects of the agreement, there is the feeling that this whole development, there is just a lack of, of a spirit of generosity. It gives the impression that this whole development and the developer is there simply to extract from the country without giving, giving much. Because I thought when a developer comes to somebody's country to establish development projects, that they would come with a spirit of generosity. I mean, you're coming into my country to develop, to invest. I would think you would come with a spirit of generosity. But there, if you read the agreement, there is no such feeling of generosity. So it is not, really, it is not clear what are the benefits to us of such a, a development a project. Now, the newly formed Royal Turf Club of St. Lucia will own the Pearl of the Caribbean. So, where does that fit in, first of all, with what you describe as a spirit of generosity? Well, <laughs> very little is clear about these kind of considerations. It is not clear who is going to own what. There is a, a cloud over much. The only reason why、um, uh, we have some sense of the agreement. Was because somebody leaked the agreement. The agreement from which I'm quoting, it was leaked out. Otherwise, we would have been in the dark with respect to the details. So, regardless of what he said, of who, who is going to own what, it is never clear who would be the actual owners. But according to the agreement, Tio King, the developer, will establish a house with track. According to the agreement, The developer would own the track. The land will basically be given to the developer. All、um, obstructions in the way of the development h a s to be removed by government at cost. Government h a s to bring all infrastructure required. Government h a s to provide infrastructure at cost. The developer may invest some of his own money in the building of the horse race track, but All that money spent will have to be refunded. Government would have to pay back all of that money that the developer puts in the horse race track. And on top of that, the whole CIT scheme, the whole development scheme, will be largely funded by sale of solution passports. But it will, it will be that same developer who will be responsible for selling solution passports overseas. And that developer will put that money in an escrow and use that money at his discretion. The only requirement is that at the time of withdrawing from that escrow, he informs the government that the withdrawal is taking place.
Yeah, I want to just back up a second and make our listeners aware of what this situation is. So Tao Aking of the China Horse Club owns the company that has developed and built the track. And I say that because another issue you have with this deal is that the only pledge made by the developer is for the racetrack part of the complex. The rest of it, you write, is dependent upon the St. Lucian government attracting other investors, as you mentioned, and the way to attract other investors is by selling St. Lucian passports. Can you just explain for our listeners what is involved in the government selling a passport, which sounds like a weird concept? Well, you know, I mean, it is the Trinity the Caribbean where to raise investment monies, citizen by investment, they call it. So CIT, citizen by investment. So basically, to attract foreign investment to the country, the government sells St. Lucian citizenship to foreigners, basically selling the passports. And in return, these investors invest in St. Lucia. And there are different categories of investment. And since this present administration came to power, they reduced the requirement to get passports. So whereas they have almost half the amount of money you have to invest to get a passport, this administration half that amount, and they relax the oversight and the other requirements. If you simply want to get a passport, the cheapest option is that you give the government 100,000 US dollars, which goes into a government development fund. So that gives you a passport. $100,000 that you have to invest in the National Economic Fund of St. Lucia. Yes. If you're coming in as an individual investor in terms of hotels and so on, then you are are required to have about um, $300,000. You have an investment of about $300,000 U.S. dollars. I had seen $200,000, that it was $200,000 and the government lowered that to 100,000. Is that right? Yes, you are talking about the first category where you simply given the government your money, which the government puts into a, an economic development fund, and you don't have no benefit from that fund. So basically, you simply directly buy a passport. The other category of acquiring a passport is you coming in to actually invest. And of course, you will be um, reaping the, the proceeds from that investment. So for this um, latter category, the amount you have to invest is $300,000 plus. Okay, I want our audience to keep those numbers in mind when we get to our chat with Eden Harrington of the China Horse Club coming up after the break. But St. Lucia's form of government is a parliamentary democracy similar to England. The British and French alternated control of the island until it won its independence in 1978. There's a prime minister, Alan Chastanet, as we mentioned, and two houses of parliament. Did parliament approve this deal? If not, how did it get done? Well, you know, the ruling party has the majority. So, of course, if votes are taken, they have the sway. So that's basically it. So basically, the way the whole government is structured the ruling party can basically implement whatever it wants. How polarized are politics in St. Lucia? Well, it's extremely polarized. Everything has to do with politics, um, from the very minute activity to the large activity. In terms of one's ability to get jobs, 
is political. Government contracts, even very small contracts, is distributed along political lines. I mean, everything is very political. We're talking here on In the Gate with Dr. Anderson Reynolds, an expert in the socioeconomic history of the island of St. Lucia, where the Pearl of the Caribbean racetrack complex will soon host its first major thoroughbred race, the Pitons Cup, on December 14th. According to AverageSalarySurvey.com, who even knew there was such a thing, the average annual salary made by someone living in St. Lucia is under $28,000 a year in U.S. dollars. So, with the numbers we just discussed, $100,000, $200,000, or $300,000 of investment needed, what do residents of St. Lucia feel about this project? Okay, just to back up, the average salary is much lower than $28,000 U.S. In fact, $28,000 U.S. will be like almost like the upper end of salaries in St. Lucia. So, for example, somebody with a master's degree in the educational system teaching will be making about $2,000 U.S. So $2,000 U.S. a month is above the average salary in St. Lucia. So $28,000 a month, I think the average salary is well below that. But go ahead. Well, nonetheless, given the income situation, what do the residents of St. Lucia feel about this project? Well, what response you get depends on what part of the country people are from. Those who are not from the immediate vicinity of Beaufort, as particularly those living in the capital castries, sees this investment project as a way of developing the, the island, the way of developing the south of the island, which lags behind the north in development. So some people see it as a great opportunity that can transform the whole economic landscape, particularly in the south of the island. Some see it, particularly those living from Beaufort, because the whole protest groups have been established to oppose some of the conditions that came along with the initiative. These people will see it as a loss of sovereignty, environmental degradation, given one entity a monopoly over the wealth of the country. The government relaxed passport requirements, removed visa requirements for citizens of China. So potentially, the developer can sell as many passports as required to complete the development. So it may be possible, it may be, for example, they can sell $40,000, 40,000 passports, which means an addition of 40,000 citizens to St. Lucia. Our population is about 170,000. And the population of the tongue of Euford where the development is taking place is under 10,000. So the development, as what is on paper, it may have a lot of social and economic dislocation, and it can change the political landscape of the island. But let me hasten to say, no one opposed the horse track per se, because I was president of the Southern Tourism Development Corporation, an entity in Beaufort, and we were actively lobbying and pushing for a horse track in Beaufort, because we do have um, horse racing. Horse racing has been going on by local horsemen. So really, what people are concerned about is the terms and conditions of the whole d- development 
not just the horse racing track, but the whole, but the development taken, taken as a whole. Meaning the marinas and the casino and the other parts that are proposed? Yes, because if this happens, the developer will have a, an economic monopoly on the island because they will control the best part of the um, real estate on the island. They are tied with the China construction company, which, of course, is funded by the Bank of China. So really, a lot of the construction might come on the, the China construction company. And now, in addition to... So they will be the ones most likely doing most of the construction. They will be involved, I think, in the development of the airport and seaport. So really, you have... Basically, it's looking like you will have a Chinese monopoly on the island. So it is problematic to put such a large chunk of the economic activity in the south of the island into one hand. So that's another problem people have with the whole development. To play devil's advocate, Dr. Reynolds, I mean, over 60% of the island's economy comes from tourism, resorts that are owned by major international conglomerates. What is different about this complex? Well, a lot is different. First and most of the hotels that have been established by fans from outside, the developers come with their money and they put up a hotel. That's one, that's different. Two, you have many of those hotels by different owners. Of course, Sanders Hotel has three or four properties owned by one entity. And these properties are largely in the north of the island. But in the north of the island, there are many other hotels by different owners. So what you have in view for is that you would have under one ownership, horse track, hotel and seaport development, casino, marina, all of this whole thing will, according to the agreement, will be under one entity. So that's a big departure. And also, the other aspects of the agreement, the other hotels didn't have that much of a generous offers. What do you mean? Well, I mean, it is not clear to me, for example, the land lease for one dollar for a hundred years. But here is the thing, though. Here is another aspect of this land lease I should mention. The developer will lease the land for a dollar per acre for a hundred years. And the developer estimates that it may take fulfilling that whole development thing might take maybe 25 years. So then we are going to put all those lands in the hands of the developer. The land may sit around for 25 years. And at the end of 25 years, the developer may not develop the land, but the land will not be available to any other entity for development. So that's a difference from the other hotels who come in, um, secure the site of our land, and build their hotel in a year or two and start operating. So there is a lot different to this whole of DSH development. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but I know when we have Eden Harrington of the China Horse Club on after the break, one of the things he's going to say is that Desert Star Holdings, the developer, has put up whatever money it has put up so far to build the track that the government of St. Lucia has not put up one dime yet and that it is up to the government to bring in these other investors. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, that's not true. The government, <laughs> both the prime minister 
and the agreement signed by the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister has gone on television to specifically, to categorically say that all the money still working will be spending on the horse track will be refunded back to him from CIP funds. From the investment fund. Yeah, so clearly T.O. King isn't using his money. In fact, he's just lending his money for this in- initial stage of the development. Money he will be getting back. And it is not clear that it is just his money being spent. Because according to the agreement, the infrastructure, for example, there is a landfill that has to be condemned because it is enclosed in the area of the development. That's a government cost. I mean, there is the whole Bofeju farm had to be condemned. That's a cost to the government. On the Bofeju farm, there, there was an abattoir funded by Taiwanese funds that because the development encompasses it, it means that abattoir may have to be put down or the developer may use it for other purposes. All these are costs to the government. Now, I don't know which activities the government is actually funding out of their pockets right now. But clearly, even as we speak, the whole development is coming at a tremendous cost to the government, both kind and in-kind cost. Dr. Anderson Reynolds is a socioeconomic expert in St. Lucia. Thank you so much for a few minutes, doctor. Yes, thank you very much for having me on your program. As we said at the beginning, we invited a representative of Desert Star Holdings and the China Horse Club to come on the show and share their side of this situation. They politely declined. So when we come back here on In the Gate, we're going to change gears and give you a history of dirt, at least dirt in American horse racing. Before we know where the sport might be headed in terms of racetrack surface technology, we need to know where we've been. Our resident dean of horse racing journalists, Gary West, will bring us up to date when we come back. Welcome back to In the Gate. Unless you've been living under a rock, if you follow the racing industry, you know that the problems that Santa Anita experienced this past winter have once again called into question, among other things, the safety of racing surfaces. There are three main types of track surfaces in use in the sport. Conventional dirt, man-made dirt, known as synthetic, and grass, or turf. Earlier this year, the Jockey Club revealed that the rate of horse fatalities was markedly higher on conventional dirt than on either synthetic or turf. Turf, 1.20 fatalities per thousand starts. Synthetic dirt, 1.23. Dirt, 1.86. So you, as the listener, might say, well, the numbers are obvious. We have to go to turf and synthetic only and get rid of dirt. But, as our cherished ESPN college football analyst Lee Corso so often exclaims, not so fast, my friend. Before we talk about where the sport might be headed in terms of racing surfaces, we need to know where we've been. And to help with that, We welcome back here to Win the Gate, after far too long an absence, the Dean of Horse Racing Journalists, the great Gary West, who I understand was there when the very first dirt track in the United States was built in what is now Brooklyn, New York, in 1821. You remember the Union Race Course, don't you, Mr. West? Went there many times. <laughs> yes, it had the uh, the skinned course, I think they called it, meaning it was a dirt track. 
and it was a novelty, by the way, until then the racing had all been on uh, grass surfaces. At the turn of the century, there were about 300 racetracks in America. And these racetracks, of course, wanted to be or needed to be located near the population, near all these people that suddenly were fascinated with horse racing. And that meant they had to be located near the city or in the city. By 1920, certainly the majority of Americans had moved or were living in in the city. And we were making a transition from an agrarian society and an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. And these racetracks in the city, of course, had dirt surfaces because they were easier to maintain and you could race on them repeatedly. And you could also train on them. You could train and race on them. So the need to be close, I think, to the population and to this this, uh, newfound fan base was largely the reason for the proliferation of dirt tracks and almost to the exclusion of, of turf racing at some point in America. You know, when John Morrissey laid out the uh, the Saratoga meeting in, in uh, 1863, they raced on the trotter course. And, of course, that was a dirt course. And the reason they raced there, which was one mile from the city, as opposed to further out in what might be regarded as a more pastoral area was John Morrissey owned several uh, casinos in town and he wanted to keep the people right there. So they would go to his casinos and enjoy the entertainments offered by the city. So there were a number of reasons for the, uh, the racetracks to adopt dirt surfaces rather than turf courses. Well, I just want to back up one second because obviously American racing came from British racing. British racing runs almost exclusively on turf. There are hundreds of racetracks throughout England that are not far from major metropolitan areas where you run three days in one place and then five days in another because, like you said, you you have to let the turf course recover. Why didn't that kind of a system take root here? Well, keep in mind... Those racetracks in England and throughout Europe that now seem close to population centers weren't close necessarily when they were established. Mass transit has reduced distance for any person going to anywhere in the country, certainly. And that includes people going from London to Newmarket. But I I, I think the main reason that didn't occur here was that it was no longer the sport of kings. Certainly many aristocrats in America were involved in racing, as we all know. But there was an imperative at American racetracks to make them economically efficient. And it wasn't just a matter of one man saying, my horse is faster than yours, and let's go out to Newmarket Downs and figure out if, if that statement is true or not. Moreover, I will bet on it. You know, that, that that's what racing was all about up until the mid-19th century. Andrew Jackson uh, made a fortune betting on Truxton, uh, his famous horse. And most of those races were match races, such as um, Eclipse against Sir Harry and, and Lexington against Lecomte. They were match races. And, and, and that kind of racing was no longer economically efficient. And it became 
economically necessary, I think, to have dirt courses as opposed to exclusively turf courses. All right, now that explains the early 20th century, and that's why we have Gary West on, because nobody has a perspective like he does. But even in my lifetime, back in the 80s, few racetracks in North America held any maiden races on turf. Horses that were bred for grass would still have to start on dirt. What made for that kind of almost exclusive bias this late in the game? Well, I can remember when many racetracks didn't even have a turf course. And those tracks that did have a turf course have one turf course. It was difficult to maintain because, of course, every time you ran on it, you, to some degree, damaged it. And so only the best horses got to run on the turf. But that has changed, I think, as we've learned how to maintain the turf courses. And as more and more racetracks, such as Gulfstream Park and Belmont, have multiple turf courses in Arlington Park. And they they can move the rail in and out to create a, a turf course that is more sustainable. But that, that wasn't possible. And I don't think many people even thought it necessary up until, I don't know, maybe the 1960s. I know it wasn't long ago when you would move a horse to the turf as a last resort. Most of the rich races in America, and there's, a, again, a strong economic incentive here to run on dirt. Most of the rich races are on the dirt. Most of the best horses race on the dirt. And so that's, that's where the money is, and that's where you go. You only try the turf if you've, you've proven you can't make the money on the dirt. That changed. I suppose you could cite the Arlington Million as being one of those turf races that, that changed the game and convinced people that there was money to be made on the grass, convinced people also that stallions with a history of producing turf runners uh, are more attractive than, than perhaps they once might have been. And and now today, of course, you, you find the game changed completely. Some racetracks run almost as many races on the turf as the dirt. And indeed, betters have come to realize, arguably, that turf racing is, is to their benefit, that uh, turf racing is better than dirt racing. In fact, I've made that argument myself. The races have larger fields. The payoffs generally are greater. And the the races, based on average winning margin, uh, the races are more contentious and competitive, therefore more exciting. So turf racing, I think, is is gaining momentum, has gained momentum in this country. And uh, any, any new racetrack, if you can imagine such a thing, would be wise to, to have multiple turf courses. Wait, a new race? Did you say new racetrack? You put those two words in the same <laughs> sentence, right? If you can imagine such a thing, yes. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult to imagine anyone trying such an uh, adventure these days. But uh, if you were to do that, if you were designed to design a new racetrack, you would have multiple turf courses, certainly. The other reason I've yet to figure out why turf racing was so prejudiced against back in the day is because Americans, I think more than Europeans, are obsessed with speed, where Europeans value staying, you know, durability, and turf races are run faster than dirt. So why horsemen didn't take to turf in this country also surprises me. Well, I I think that has something to do with our cowboy culture. The first quarter horse race, or at least the first race 
run at a specified distance of a quarter mile was in, I think, 1874 or uh, in Virginia, and they raced on the city streets, a dirt street, obviously. And the quarter mile seemed like a good distance because it was a distance that these horses that were used on ranches um, excelled at. And that had something to do with the preference for a dirt surface and certainly something to do a lot to do with the preference for speed because the horses that were most admired weren't the horses that could run five miles necessarily, but the horses that could run a quarter mile very quickly. And don't forget the standard bread was very popular in America. In fact, the most popular horse in the country in the last uh, half of the 19th century was what was her name? Lady Clifford, who is also known as the Old Grey Mare in song. Make, make that Lady Suffolk. Uh, the Old Grey Mare in song. The most famous racehorse, almost famous horse in America in the last half of the 19th century. She won almost 100 races, and she once raced at Saratoga and attracted a crowd of thousands. And, of course, they raced on a dirt course. The immortal Gary West joins us here on In the Gate. He's not quite as old as dirt, but the history of dirt racing in this country is the topic. So in 1965, the first man-made track, a synthetic, which was called Tartan Track, was tested at Laurel Racecourse in Maryland. And then the next year, 1966, it was used for real at Tropical Park in Miami. What do you remember about that experiment? Well, I remember the, the early experiments with the artificial surfaces were ab- more admirable than successful. The artificial surfaces tended to break down, giving the, uh, the heat and the weather conditions. If it were uh, cold, the uh, material would, would congeal and gather together and uh, create uh, clumps. But artificial surfaces have come a long way. And at this point, I think you know, we've arrived at a time when there are artificial surfaces that are certainly safer than most dirt courses and would be, I think, welcome as, as training tracks, if nothing else. Many of those owners and trainers at Tropical Park refused to run on that rubberized surface. A rubberized surface, there was only one race a day that was carted there. Now we start in the modern era, as you mentioned, 1987, with Polytrack, which was installed at the training center for legendary British trainer Richard Hannon Sr. It was made of sand and recycled carpet, recycled rubber, and even spandex, spandex ladies, as well as shredded newspaper that was covered with a waxy coating. And then the next year, 1988, Remington Park in Oklahoma became the first track in the United States to go synthetic. They installed something called Equitrack, That lasted a grand total of three years. Similar story with the California tracks and at Keeneland. The experiment wasn't long-lived at any of them, and now only five North American synthetic tracks remain. Now, here's the question. How much of that pushback by horsemen then and now was the typical, this is how we do it, meaning dirt, because this is how we've always done it, and how much was a legitimate problem with the synthetics? Great question. I, I, I think most most of it had to do with the uh, the horsemen resisting change. I, I remember the the uh, Remington Park track very clearly, and and certainly there were difficulties there. Even the Poly track, and it was installed first at Keeneland, uh, and then I think Turfway. It was very susceptible to changes in weather, 
and and horsemen complained about that. But I think what they were really complaining about more than anything was the uh, the change that this surface uh, brought to their lives and into the way they trained their horses. No doubt, there were many problems with the synthetic surfaces, all of them that I can recall and all of them that I saw. But I think in time we could have worked it out, and I think in time these surfaces have gotten better and better. You can conversely make the argument that if if the dirt surfaces were given the same amount of, shall we say, scientific and uh, technological attention, that they could be nearly as safe or just as safe as the as the synthetic sur- surfaces, and maybe so. I don't know, but uh, we've arrived at a point where we can we can make racing surfaces very, very safe. And that's something the sport should applaud and, uh, and should, should approach very conscientiously and, and cut no corners uh, in that regard. Well, we mentioned the fatality rate by surface in our open. Across the country, it's turf, 1.20 fatalities per thousand starts, synthetic dirt, 1.23, dirt, 1.86. That said, Churchill this spring lost three horses in 3,148 starts between dirt and turf, a rate of 0.95, its best rate since 2010. So in the big picture of racing surface talk, some of which came up recently at the Global Symposium in Arizona, what do those numbers mean to you? Well, no no number, no fatality is, is acceptable, of course. But it, it means we're making progress. Uh, certainly Churchill's made progress. And, and I think if these surfaces are managed and maintained with diligence and intelligence, we can make them as, as safe as, as possible. Uh, horses, despite what, what some might believe, horses want to race. If you would turn them out in a field, they would race. That's what they were bred to do since the 17th century, and they would race. And actually putting them on a racetrack and racing them under supervised conditions means they're racing much more safely than they would if we just turned them loose in a field. Still, we have an obligation to these great animals to uh, make the sport as safe as possible for both horse and rider. So open your crystal ball. What happens to dirt surfaces 10 years from now? I think dirt surfaces will continue to become safer. And I I think we'll continue to race on dirt because economically it makes a lot of sense to do that. And I think more and more we'll see synthetic surfaces used for training and and perhaps racing too, particularly in areas where the, the, the climate makes the surface difficult to maintain. But uh, I, I think the sport is moving in a, in a positive direction and surfaces are becoming safer and safer, and that's a very good thing. There is none like unto Gary West that we have ever had on this podcast in the eight-plus years we've been doing it. Thank you so much. Your perspective is non-parial. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very always a pleasure. Our thanks once again to Gary West and Dr. Anderson Reynolds. It's fair to say that racing needs some honest conversations to address the health and safety of the horse. But those discussions should be based in fact, not rhetoric, and should not happen with purely malicious force. That type of sputum is what you hear from the group Horse Racing Wrongs, which aims to make the industry extinct. 
But that's not all they want to wipe out. Their president has asserted a number of times, in syntax quite distinct, that thoroughbreds and quarter horses should all be sterilized so that they all will disappear from the earth. If you're an animal lover, whether or not you like the sport, this mission statement hasn't got any worth. I really hope this vitriol has not poisoned the minds of people with a platform to make change. The sport does need reform, but first a fact-based accounting to be followed by a healthy idea exchange. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us at Stitcher or that Pink Podcatcher app or wherever you get your podcasts. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.